Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Blockhead listeners, welcome to a new episode. Today we have part two of our discussion with Kevin Much, the cartoonist behind that fabulous new graphic novel, The Rough Pearl. Rough Pearl is available wherever good graphic novels are sold, at your independent bookstore, at Barnes & Noble, online at Amazon, obviously, and more importantly at fanagraphics.com. So head on over there, check it out, pick up a couple of other things while you're at fanagraphics. The website is really chock full of wonderful comics and uh, this isn't paid for by the way this is just me (laughs) telling you (laughs) if you're not familiar with that website check it out there are lots of other independent publishers out there worth checking out too these days try to help them stay afloat if you've got the uh, the available funds get some of your comics directly from the publishers it's certainly going to help them in these difficult economic times. And your local bookstore needs to help too, right? Like me, you're probably a big fan of bookstores. And, uh, and uh, these days, everybody's having some difficulty staying in business. So let's do our part and read more books. And one of those great books these days is the graphic novel, The Rough Pearl by Kevin, my good friend Kevin. And this was a great conversation. This is part two of a very long and wide-ranging discussion. Among the things that we talk about that I think was very interesting was this one uh, subject that came up in the middle here that Kevin and I don't necessarily see eye to eye on. Although, in retrospect, there's probably lots of common ground, and that's the idea that heavy subjects, serious subjects, are best dealt with by a kind of realistic visualization. And that's an interesting point. And certainly there are all kinds of examples in the history of comics wherein uh, serious subjects, and and in film and elsewhere, are tackled by a relatively straightforward, realistic approach uh, to visualization. And so I can see that point. But at the same time, I don't think it necessarily negates the idea that a cartoony, a Bigfoot cartoony style or whatnot, can't handle heavy-duty subject. And so I kind of fumbled it, though, in the interview uh, because my mind wasn't working. (laughs) I guess I hadn't had my Wheaties or something. Uh, My mind was not touching base with the great cartoonists who deal with heavy-duty subjects who have a kind of cartoony approach to them. And I'm wondering if you're thinking of some examples right now. So give it some thought. Think it through. Uh, You know, can heavy-duty subjects such as, you know, in the case of Mouse, uh, the Holocaust, um, be dealt with adequately uh, by a a cartoony, an exaggerated cartoony approach to the subject matter. Interesting idea. And, of course, it, it has an impact on we as cartoonists, you know, how we approach our own work when we're dealing with 
heavy-duty subjects. So uh, let's think about that. <laughs> Discuss among yourselves. And uh, we will we'll come back to that at the end of the show. Maybe I'll have thought of a few by then. I hope so. So let's get to this, the uh, conversation. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Kevin Much and myself in conversation. You know, so we ought to talk a little bit about your process because we talked about writing a lot. Yeah. And uh, and writing, obviously, is the backbone uh, of, you know, every every story, right? Every comic story. We talk about this when, when I talk. I think about it as, as absolutely the priority. Sure. Storytelling. And I know you and I have discussed this uh, extensively in the past, and I know we're on a very similar page about this. But I find that... Um, Maybe up until very, uh, to be honest, I haven't followed a lot of comics in the last 10 years or so because mm-hmm. I got just so busy doing them. Right. And, oh gosh, yeah. um, and being a parent and having a business and all of this, uh, I feel like maybe the uh, pendulum is starting to swing back in the world of indie comics, uh, back towards storytelling. I think of people like Noah Van Skyver. Is it Skyver? How do you pronounce his last name? Skyver? Skyver? Yeah, Noah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, I think of his books and some other things that I've seen. And even some people that have been doing this kind of like, you know, what I would have always thought about as that kind of Fort Thunder. You know, I've always referred to it as like kind of stoner art. Yeah. Uh, some of them are writing now in a way that's a little more, you know, about the story. Like I think of Michael DeForge, for example, okay. uh, as someone who writes, you know, mm-hmm. even though he's doing this type of cartooning that formally might fall into that, you know, category that maybe at its most popular extreme, you know, you could talk about a, like Adventure Time or something like that on television, that sort of rubber uh hose animation derived right. uh 60s influenced yellow submarine influenced kind of art right which was for a long time it was like it was about the art not yeah. the story yeah oh very much so and yeah. that became like kind of the prevalent uh overwhelming stance that got taken uh certainly 10 years ago it was you know you could you in fact, I was just looking through a Best American Comics from 2013, and I got to the the 50 or 60 pages of it that's just given over to one story after another like that, you know, with the bright psychedelic color. Oh, yeah. What would happen if we took bright purple and put it next to lime green, man? <laughs> oh, it's vibing right now, man. <laughs> and you're sitting there going, is there a story here? Or is it just a bunch of, like, do I need to be high? I guess I do. And... I'm hoping that that pendulum has swung back, but to, you know, to get back to your question, mm-hmm. um, in my own case, I have always thought that the story should come first, uh, even for this kind of auteur comics, you know, you could, you could talk about very, uh, powerful writing in comics at, a, at the level of more popular comics, like Alan Moore, sure. you know, mm-hmm. and, and how, or Garth Ennis and how, People like that have really managed to uh, create a kind of like uh, a type of comics that's very writer driven. And, yes. yes, you know, Watchmen is first and foremost about Alan Moore. And then people talk about, uh, oh, shit, I can't, I'm spacing. Dave on the guy's name. I love his Dave Gibbons, his work. Yeah. I love his art. 
Yeah. But it's interesting that, that 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 reversal kind of took place because for so long it was the other way around. And it was certainly that way uh, up until, and, and I think maybe in an ongoing way in indie comics, in art comics. Um, oh, hell yeah. I made a couple of those. <laughs> right? And, and, you know. and I think um, for myself, I was just never as driven by the art, even though I have a background in, as a visual artist, you know? Right. You're, you start, you were a painter and still yeah, are in some and ways. Still right? am, yeah. And yeah. so I have this whole background, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the art. And as a kid, I, you know, wanted to be a comic book artist, not a comic book writer. Uh, but I was also very interested in science fiction stories. And then I wound up doing art criticism. So I had these kind of twin tracks, you know. And in coming back to comics and drawing them again, uh, I found that even though I'm very interested in the story first. Uh, and secondly, I would say the graphic narrative aspect of telling the story in panels, the sort of structure or diagramming that people mm -hmm. talk about sometimes about comics. I think of that as like sort of the second thing. And then the third thing would be the drawing. I actually could farm that out. But if I did, not that I would because I don't have the money, but if I ever could, I would because it takes me 20 something hours to draw a page of comics and about an hour to write it. Yeah. I'd love to get more done. I'd love to farm out the drawing, but I wouldn't hand somebody a script. I would hand them uh, a rough. You'd be like Stan Lee. Yeah, I, I, I mean, did Stanley draw like little, you know, kind of? I don't think he did, dudes? but I think he, he, uh, you're right. You know, he didn't, he didn't do a rough. Um, he just gave people like a line or two and said, "Go do this," and then when they brought yeah. it back, he scripted. Yeah, it. I, I would do it the way, um, you know, a lot of people do uh, what they call thumbnails. Yeah. I don't draw thumbnails because to me that's like too small. But I do them on a sheet of, of like, I was going to say typing paper, which betrays my age, but printer paper. <laughs> <laughs> I do them on a sheet of printer paper, you know, eight and a half by 11 letter size. But you know, and, oh, I'm sorry, Alan Moore does that, doesn't he? Does he? I don't know. Yeah, I think he he, he writes out very specific instructions for, for staging. And then he also does, at least I think he used to. Um, used to do little thumbnail drawings. Now you said you, you wouldn't yeah. do thumbnails. You'd want to do something bigger, right? But go keep yeah, going. I, do. I, I call them roughs or layouts. Like I, you know, I, I, it's almost like a loose first draft if I was drawing in a cartoony style, because my native style is cartoony, very cartoony. Um, and, you know, I was very influenced um, by funny animal comics and by Robert Crumb and underground comics, Gilbert Shelton. So I do draw in a very cartoony way. If somebody's like getting a book from me at a convention and I'm supposed to sign the thing and do a little drawing in it, mm -hmm. I do a super, even in, you know, in a, in a book like The Rough Pearl, where it's like, it's, it looks kind of like realistic. Yeah. You know, but if I was doing a little drawing in the front, I, it would be a very cartoony drawing because that's how I draw. Oh, man, that's interesting. So my layouts would be like that. It would be like a, a rough draft of if I was doing the thing in my cartoony style. So that gives me the panel layouts. Mm -hmm. It allows me to think about timing. Mm -hmm. So it's all of these things that are not text 
script-based script that wouldn't be so much in the script. Mm -hmm. It's about the point of view and the angle and how big is this panel? Is this panel wide or narrow? How many panels to a page? How do you break up the time and the space? You can do all of that in a cartoony way. So I do. And just a rough cartoon. And sometimes I've looked at them and been very tempted to just polish them up. And people say, I love your cartoony style. Mm -hmm. But the problem I have is that I like gravitas. I like this idea. Like, you know, a, a book like Berlin by Jason Yeah, Lewis. I love that book. Oh, my gosh. Those deadpan drawing. Deadpan realistic drawing. Yeah. I love that. I do too. Those, those, I haven't gotten the third volume yet, but the first two just blew me away. Berlin is for those of you who are unfamiliar with it. Jason Lutz, Berlin. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, fabulous book, but go on. Yeah. And the thing is, he's writing about something heavy. Yeah. You know, he's writing about coming up to the second world war. Uh, fantastically interesting story about the rise of fascism and the struggle against it by communist and leftist Germans, you know, not a widely recognized or understood story. I love the the fact that he, he chose to do it in this kind of like uninflected or, 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 or not particularly heavily inflected drawing style. And um, I, I think that there's not enough of that in comics. I think that there's a lot of comics where people are like, you know, drawing in this cartoony way and i sympathize i do that myself but i think that it comes at the expense of the possibility of getting heavy see i i, I yeah i can see what you're saying I, I i don't think they're mutually exclusive though and I, you know i think well when we talk about cartoony and you talk about getting heavy i mean the first person who comes to mind is art spiegelman you know and mouse and certainly that's cartoony and heavy. So, you know, I mean, I see what you're saying about about that. But I think I think I think Mouse would have been a much, much better work if it hadn't been cartoony. <laughs> OK, I think, uh, for one thing, I think it would have evolved. It would have it would have avoided all of the political problems. Remember what Harvey Picard said about Mouse? I don't remember what he said. No. What did he say? Harvey Picard was very critical of Mouse and said that he found it very problematic that all of the different ethnicities in the story yeah, were okay. assigned these animals to be. Yeah, yeah. The poles, I think, was it the pigs? Poles were pigs? I think so, yeah. And, the, and, the Jews and were, were mice, pigs. the Germans were cats, uh, the Americans were dogs. And he said... You know, the problem that he had with it, I'm paraphrasing, and I read this many years ago, but as I recall, what he was, his problem was that it set up this essentialism that was like almost racist. Mm -hmm. it, was yeah. like, it wasn't happening because, and, and he, he also had a problem with depicting the Jews as vermin. <laughs> yeah, mice. Yeah. yeah, it was mice, sure. You know, he was like, that's that's kind of like going against the message, you know, which I thought was like kind of a good point and not perhaps not discussed enough. Um, and then the Germans are, you know, cats, right? It's like, well, they can't help it. It's in their nature, which is, I think, again, I think it goes against the message of the of the story. And interestingly, you know, Mouse started off as a shorter piece right. that 
he did uh, for an underground comic. I forgot what. I think it was something Kitchen Sink published. I forget. It's been a long time. Um, but he did it as obviously coming from this perspective of like putting it in the context of a funny animal uh, animated comic like the Fleischers would have done. Or yes, Fleischer, exactly, something exactly. like that from the 30s. It was in a more of a 1930s, again, you know, what, what they call rubber hose animation style with the, you know, the loose bendy limbs. Um, and um, when you read that first early, early, early draft and you see it in that context, there's a kind of like ironic intention that's very edgy and very clear that I think disappears from uh, the final version of Mouse, which has this kind of like, um, I would almost call it like a kind of, um, oh, and I'm spacing on the word here. What do they call you when you're a journeyman? It's like a journeyman's drawing mm. where he's actually trying to make it a little less inflected. And so that the style drops back a little bit. And I, I, I remember, I forget who it was. Maybe it was you. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody talking to me about his drawing style and how it was like, you know, he, it was trying to hang back. Yeah. I'll be a little gray because the story was heavy. And this gets back to, you know, the point that we were making earlier, discussing earlier. I think that it would have been a stronger work if he had, left the funny animal stuff out of it well you may have you know uh, that's a point i have to think about i mean uh, you know i i think the work is it stands as still pretty darn powerful piece of work but yeah there is the caveat and people do return to it uh you know and upon reflection i mean i think you make some good points so it's something to think about um but i still think i still think i, I wouldn't really dismiss or be too dismissive of the cartoony approach in terms of seriousness it does belie seriousness and and heaviness if you will but i think yeah. we can still attack some pretty heavy duty material utilizing uh, a fairly uh cartoony style or bigfoot yeah. style and, and yeah and i mean listen i you know carl barks is my is well my yeah more if if you had if you said name one figure one person it, for me it's carl barks before jack kirby you know before mobius or any of these other people that are kind of heroes to me carl barks funny sure. animal guy yeah uh, funny animal guy. and there was there was some heavy a little bit of heaviness that he got into but obviously he's not the person to point to in terms of somebody pulling that off uh more successfully uh do you have an example I don't know if I have one off the top of my head. I don't, but I, I don't disagree with your point. I'm just trying to think of a good example. Oh, of, of comics that, you know, off the top of my head, I'm blanking out too. I mean, uh, somebody well, that's heavy, but cartoony. Well, yeah, I mean, even like, even like, uh, Pete Bag with, oh, um, Peter Bag. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Hate, uh, right? With hate. Yeah. Uh, very cartoony. Very cartoony. Yeah. And sure. gets heavy. You yeah. know, there's well, some really, I mean, you know, when they kill that one guy or the one guy shoots himself and then they have to contend with his corpse for years. 
Yeah. Well, it's you know, there, there's a lot of different, I mean, ways of defining heaviness too, you know, I mean, yeah. um, it, it depends on what we're talking about. And so when I think about like something like, uh, well, you know, it's a show called Blockhead, right? So I think about Peanuts and, and Peanuts is often sort of. There you go. There's a good example. Yes. You know, exactly. and, and it deals with psychology and, you know, the soul really. And, yeah. And a lot of, and Schultz is, is over the course of 50 years, pretty heavy in regard to disappointment and, and, yeah. uh, you, you know, perseverance and all of those kinds of things that it deals with on a day-to-day basis. I think he yeah. deals with that stuff pretty deeply, yeah. uh, it, it, strangely enough in a medium that does that, you know, more often than not does everything it can to subvert that quality, yeah. uh, he found a way to do it so yeah, yeah. so I, there's possibility well, let, me, there. let me try and finesse uh <laughs> my thought about that then okay this way i think that in general i think that it's unfortunate the comics are called comics it's as though you know all all movies were referred to as comedies you know yeah. did you yeah. see the latest you know the latest Meryl Streep comedy you know oh, that sounds funny no no it's very heavy <laughs> you know? i know yeah, yeah. So I think that's a problem for comics because it's like, you know, to this day, everyone's like trying to say, listen, these things can be serious. And um, I find that uh, there's really it's, you know, I think of comics as like the greatest medium to work in at the moment. Sure. Even though I, I was just at some talk with uh, here in Hamilton, actually, with Chester Brown mm-hmm. and um uh, again, with, I have this nouns issue where I can't remember anyone's name or <laughs> um, famous Canadian uh, just put out uh, famous Canadian cartoonist. Seth. Seth. Thank you. So okay. Seth and Chester Brown are giving this talk and um, here in Hamilton. And uh, I've tried they, to get Seth on the show, but unsuccessfully so far. Yeah. So they were talking about, and Seth in particular was talking about comics as like, in his view, a kind of medium in decline, which is, I think, arguably a fair point, uh, certainly in terms of uh, its original form, you know, having any kind of uh, widespread popularity the way it did, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And you could argue, well, of course, it's like having a tremendous influence on popular culture and not just through the superhero movies. You know, we sit around and we, you know, we're watching uh, The End of the Fucking World and uh, the other one that they just did from Forsman. And I'm saying, you guys realize this is coming out of indie comics, you know? Yeah. Uh, To my family, this is a fanographics book, actually. So there's that argument, okay, well, it's not a dying medium. It's having this influence. Uh, and I, I sympathize with that, but I'm actually, the thing that I think, contra to Seth's point about it as now starting to academicize and be taught in universities, and that's how you can tell it's on its way out. I'm not unsympathetic to that point. <laughs> I, just think, <laughs> I just think in the case of comics, um, that, and let's say graphic narrative, because I don't even like the word comics. Yeah. Uh, let's say comics, so I don't sound pretentious. In the case of comics slash graphic narrative, I think that what it has going for it, that even though we point to film and TV and say, this 
is popular culture. There's a problem or a crisis with that, which is the expense of it. I mean, this is why serious film disappeared from cinema. You know, and now we all understand that movie theaters, to the extent that they were still a going concern, and maybe they won't be now because of the pandemic. But the understanding that you had to have a tentpole superhero type or Harry Potter type fantasy type story, a big special effects story, to even make that a, an economically viable prospect to make a, a big movie. And so serious films stopped being possible and got driven into television now. And arguably that's a good thing. And arguably, you know, we're in the golden age of peak TV. I tend to agree with that actually. Yeah, so do there's, I. Yeah. There's this ongoing crisis of like the cost of production and the fragmentation of the market yeah. where you get smaller and smaller audiences. And after you're down below a million, you know, when you're yeah. below like what HBO can pull in, then it starts to be like, how do you fund it? And I don't know if technological advances make that more possible in the future more cheaply because certainly shooting digitally is cheaper but you still have to pay for actors and sets and all of this and at a certain point as the audience fragments as all of these outlets and streaming platforms arrive you start thinking does the business model break down and i'll tell you what I did not have to worry about that. In the seven years I sat there doing the rough pearl, I did not have to worry about that. My time is my own to the extent that I have a little spare time. If it's a couple hours a day, I can do the thing. And the cost for me to make that book was maybe five bucks for a bunch of <laughs> typing paper, I'll say. <laughs> typing paper. Well, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of of creation it's the beauty of making comics i mean one of the reasons one of the things that struck me way back in the 90s when i started getting into independent comics and doing my own stuff was look i could just do this and this was this was always the case too why i started painting i had been a film student studying animation back in in this uh late 70s and then i was out and now of you're doing animation again i I'm keep doing animation again i know it looks great oh thank it you it looks it looks completely professional well, thank you. I, I am working my tail off to get better at it, and uh, I'm working on two films. But that, that's a side side point, anyway. But the thing is, I can. Here's the thing: it goes right into what you're saying. I can do it in my living room with my laptop or my my iPad on my my you know lap. I'm just working away. I was working away this morning on an animated sequence, you know, before we talked, and and it's I never you couldn't do that forty years. Yeah. Ago. Yeah. Now you can. And so the technology, and even, even if you're not working with the technology, if you just have paper and pencil, you can make comics, you can make animation, you can make this stuff on your own. You can put, I can, there are ways to get that stuff out there. You can make a movie, you can put it up on YouTube. You, you may not get a million people, but you, you've got your stuff, you've got your voice out there, your voice is out there and somebody's going to trip on it and find it. And, and it's going to relate to somebody else. I think there's, there's something, you know, okay, I don't know about this idea that, that comics are 
the business model may be, you know, declining in decline and I'm not, it'll have to find a new way of, of, you know, I mean, one of the things I noticed, my mind is jumping all over the place now. One of the things I thought about way back in the seventies was, uh, when I was reading a lot of different, um, reading a lot of different literature. And one of the things I noticed was all these writers were university professors, <laughs> all of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I began to think to myself, you know, patronage exists in the university. It seems like, you know, in order to get something done, you've got to have some support system. And in order to find a support system, it looks like all these people, are, these writers are all coming from English departments. And and I thought, wow, you know, and the same thing is true of painting, right? You know, the patronage yeah, system. Yeah, and it corresponds with the, uh, to go to back to Seth's point, it really does correspond to the death of the medium. <laughs> the death of the medium or the death of the business model. Well, because, the death of, let's say, let's say the more abundant of the work oh, it could yeah i mean it's, it's certainly like a, a lot of like academic you know writing like i just hate uh, oh. a creative writing department writing you know what i mean like that, I, kind that of, fits within the mold yeah sure you yeah. know uh, the maverick stuff is, but you can still find like you know i mean kurt vonnegut was teaching in a writing program and i love vonnegut you know and and john irving those are some of the people i was reading yeah. about yeah. And uh, E.L. Vonnegut came up like he, he was selling stories, you know, yeah. like he was yeah. making and he came up like making a living as a writer, you know, yeah. fairly disreputable corner of publishing. Yeah. But wound up teaching. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm sympathetic. I'm not totally unsympathetic to the academy. In fact, I was teaching at McMaster University here this term mm-hmm. uh, and and was really crushed when the pandemic hit because it was I was having a riot teaching painting oh great Um, but I'm very conscious of the fact that um those sources of support those types of patronage Mm -hmm. uh really limit the art they really make it you know in visual art in Canada so much of the funding for artists is government grants yeah. And the work reflects the patron. I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I could, you can see that. Sure. Uh, yeah. it's not always true, not a hundred percent true, but I, I, you know, I think you're, you've got a point. I mean, you, there's you get a this kind of... really academic, mm-hmm. uh, uh, boring, politically correct work in, in Canadian art and American art, uh, is arguably in a better position because there's a commercial gallery system in existence that does support it. But it's also like obvious that, you know, that work is being produced for a whole other series of very problematic economic reasons for, you know, the richest yeah. people in the world. Yeah. Which is absolutely. a different discussion. And I think it doesn't have a very good effect on the on that work either. Yeah. One of the things I've always loved about comics is, is exactly, I mean, you know, is that it's not for those people, you know, exactly. it's, it's being produced for, for, you know, the, I don't know anybody, you know, but it's yeah, not being it's DIY. By, it's yeah, DIY. Yeah. Anyone can sit down and make one. Anyone can get them out. You put them on the internet if you want, yeah. you put out a zine and it's very, it's the, it's more punk rock than a punk rock record. <laughs> well, you because know, there's a punk a rock count. record was more expensive to produce. 
Yeah, yeah, you need studio time. Or, well, now you just need the equipment. But, I mean, yeah, you know, the um, there's a vitality. And that was what, I, what got me into comics in the 90s again. The same kind of thing that happened to you. But for me, it happened in a comic shop. And I was in Jim Henley's, you know, near the Empire State Building. And it was just after I finished grad school. And I was like, well, what, the, what am I going to do? You know, I mean, wh- what happens next? And I, I was in this comic shop and I was like, well, actually, you know, before that, my wife had turned me on to a bunch of comics that she picked up at a street fair, you know, and they were like, you know, a quarter each or something. And she bought a bunch of them. And I was just like tripping on the vitality and all this independent stuff, you know, I mean, it's just incredible. And when I was in Jim Henley's following that, I looked at this, you know, rack of books, none of which were superhero, all of which seemed to come out of left field, you know, and from disparate points of view. And I was like, this is like the greatest little art gallery in the freaking world. You know, there's just so much great stuff here and it's coming from who knows where. I, I just thought it was the most exciting thing because it tied into what was always exciting for me about comics, which was that it was really there was a kind of democratization about it, even though uh, it was by people who were, you know, within the economic sphere that I could understand, you know, for people in that same economic sphere, you know, 12 cents, 15 cents for a comic book. I could afford that. I can't afford yeah. you know, DC and Marvel comics today. I, I, you know, it's too expensive, but, uh, but you know what I'm saying? You know, yeah, it's just, I forget who I was just listening to some other cartoonist getting interviewed and he was saying the same thing that it's like, you know, comics ought to be a dollar or a dollar 50. Yeah. And I, I agree. I mean, how do you expect to forget the good high quality paper and forget the, mm-hmm. you know, I like the all of this jazz. Yeah. I mean, I love the collected books. We were just talking about Fantagraphics in your book. It's a beautiful piece of art. And it glows in the dark, by the way, people. So <laughs> yes, uh, it does. Check, check that out. Uh, but, you know, um, that that was one of the things, you know, I love all the collected stuff. I love all the archival stuff. I love all of it. You know, I, I have a great, wonderful, big library of books. But at the same time, when it came to comic books, seri- you know, the floppies, man, 25 cents, I could buy four of them and on newsprint and they were as good as anything you know sometimes even better and i loved them for that you know <laughs> i love yeah, i could do that every week you know i might you know i'd cut the grass or whatever and then i could buy a bunch of comics yep and exactly. my son uh loves to go and buy comics but they're five bucks you yeah. get you'll get one or two yeah and, and you can't do it on right. And, and I haven't been able to buy comics on a regular basis since I've been an adult. <laughs> <You know? laughs> hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. 
because they're just too expensive and that is a problem there's a i think there's a lot of problems with the economic model i i think there's a lot of problems with the um the corporate model although in some sense that those like you were talking about big blockbuster movies keep the the business afloat make possible some of this other stuff but then again to the point at which now as you were also pointing out uh intimate movies personal movies aren't in the theater anymore they're on the television and uh or on the computer screen and um and there's good things and bad things about that i mean there is nothing quite like seeing a movie in a big movie theater and uh and yeah, that, living well, in new york really soured me on that because <laughs> <laughs> everyone talks I know. I always feel like you're on the verge of getting into a fight. Yeah, I know, right? I know. It's not, it's not, yeah. It's not I remember when I went to see, what was the Johnny Depp version of the of Hunter S. Thompson's? Uh, oh, it? Fear and uh, Loathing? Yeah, I went to see Fear and Loathing when that came out, whenever that was, the 90s. But I, I was in Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. And some stoned guy was right in front of me you know, throwing popcorn and making a big, and I, I almost came to blows with the guy. I, you know, I grabbed him by the arm and told him to fucking knock it off. It was that, you know, <laughs> that type of thing would happen to you. And yeah. now I sit here, you know, with my family on the couch and we watch these like, you know, peak TV, mm-hmm. um, you know, serious and amazing shows that we just love. And uh, it's somebody needs to, Go get a drink of water and we pause it. And I love yeah. it. I wouldn't yeah. go back. I wish yeah, I, I wish I had a bigger TV though. Well, yeah. You know, we what it's crazy. We watch everything. We got a, a little TV. It's a little, you know, maybe 24 inches across. But um, most of the time when we go to bed at night and watch something, we're watching it on an old laptop. And it's like, you know, 17 inches. That's the size of the screen. And that's it, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. Although, you know, if that's close enough to your face, it's like, yeah. In a giant movie theater with a giant screen, thirty yeah. rows ahead of you. Yeah, and and stories are great. It's, it's just incredible stuff, and and uh, so a lot of that intimate stuff, you know, personal filmmaking is finding its way there. I don't know, you know, I think the the I don't know that we're gonna live long enough to see the next shift, paradigm shift, but. Uh, comics will find i don't think comics as a form is is dying i i have to take issue with that i think mm-hmm. comics as a form is is vital and will continue to be vital and your book is just an example of that you know and um work continues to be produced that is still very powerful and very strong and and some of it is very funny and and some of it is throwaway and i think it'll just continue to be as vital as anything you know the economics of it i don't know you know I, that's not my not thing sure. and i am not uh, if i had an economic brain in my head i you know <laughs> i i'd hire some coaches. Well, look, i mean i mean in my case okay so i did this book i didn't need an advance mm-hmm um, right. The, the book was done. Yeah, you were doing it on your own anyway. Yeah, and it was even being seen to some extent because I was just posting it on the web. So nothing stopped me. It was finished, and now I'm happy to say, well, it got published, and it's getting you know looked at a little more than it would have otherwise have been, probably a lot more. But the point is, nothing stopped me, and yeah. that means it's a living form. For anyone else in that same position, and there are hundreds of thousands of people in that position. So that's the good news. 
Yeah. I remember 10 years ago, of course, uh, you and I used to do uh, um, uh, a blog together called yeah. Next Issue. Yeah, we did that for a little while. <laughs> and we would, we, we would talk about some of these thoughts about, uh, you know, the form of comics and ideas around comics, uh, the history of things. And, you know, one thing that we were interested in at that time was the advent of tablets. Yes. And you know, turned out to be iPads and then things of that nature. But they weren't quite out then. And right. we were thinking, like, will this have a really revolutionary impact on comics because does it make it cheaper and you know and on and on and now in perspective looking back on that historically um from today i would say that the interesting thing that's happened with comics was that it kind of i mean first of all they they with comicsology they really got together and said we got to stop this or we won't have a print market they, they kind of, I think the publisher, I think there was a certain amount of, like, I don't want to say collusion, but, <laughs> but there was certainly a, a certain amount of thought that went into the price point, and the price point was, that came out was high. So yeah. the price point for my book, The Rough Pearl on Comixology, is $14.99. Yeah. And the book, is which had to be printed and, you know, yeah. shipped and all of this, is 22 bucks or something. $22.99, yeah. Yeah. So you're not, you know, I, I would have thought that you would have it up on Comixology for $2. Sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think that that has stopped it to some extent mm -hmm. uh, from spreading the way it might have into that medium uh, or into, into that uh, digital medium. Yeah. But I also think there was another factor that we didn't foresee at that time that's turned out to be important, which is the trophy quality of, of the book. Yeah. Of having it on your shelf. And it's not just comics, obviously. And it's certainly uh, other types of book. And beyond that, it's, it's even things like music where, you know, I work, do a lot of work in the music business for a living. And uh, a lot of what I work on is okay we're putting this out on lp on vinyl yeah so that's a growing part of the market because young people really like the idea of having this tangible trophy object that you know with nice production values yeah so, so that's interesting i didn't see that coming no nor did i and i think that that uh one of the things that's interesting about the experience we're all going through right now with COVID, uh, as a teacher, uh, we've heard so much from our students about how they miss being on campus or they miss the interaction with their peers, uh, you know, the tangibility of life in general is something that is absent, you know, now in this, in this new environment that we're dealing with. And while I've enjoyed teaching online it's been a lot of work but i've enjoyed aspects of it uh, for me it's been great because i'm not commuting anymore but mm -hmm. uh my students some of my students uh, not so much in my case but in the case of other things you know they find that that those tangible elements of life are are missing and are very important and it's interesting because 
these guys are millennials, right? And they're supposed to be the digital generation, and that stuff's not supposed to be to matter as much to them. But you know, it's clear that at least in this experience, it's reinforced the the necessity of touch, as it were. And, uh, yeah, and a, a kind of authenticity. Yeah, you know that all of that mediated living and social media, all of that digital stuff. Um, it's wonderful. I mean, I, I love it. And I, I often think of some, something that I heard one time where somebody said, you know, what this stuff is really doing is it's kind of re-enchanting the world because all the magic got drained out of the world by like sort of the late 19th century by science, you know? Yeah. And this is kind of re-enchanting the world. And I, I kind of agree with that. Like, I think there's this wonderful magic, but I, I also agree that there's this kind of like plastic, you know, quality to it where it's only so rich and then it just feels like phone sex or something, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I understand that young people in particular have this kind of like sense of inauthenticity. And I'm very sympathetic to that because where I grew up in Canada there's always been this sense of inauthenticity because you're flooded with American pop culture, American right. media. You watch a lot of American TV and movies and read a lot of American books and comics, obviously. And you feel like, well, where we are is like America, but not real. It's mm -hmm. not real America. Yeah. And there's nothing there. I think it's arguably probably not quite as bad now as it was 40 years ago, um, because the cultures have diverged a little more and things evolved. But at that time, there was this widespread sense of like you you couldn't be for real, in particular as an artist, unless you made it in the states. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so there was this feeling of inauthenticity, as though you were living in you know plato's cave looking at the shadows on the wall yeah but re real reality was the states that was you know that was not um not something that i you know overtly thought about when i moved there but in retrospect boy that feeling of like landing in new york yeah. thinking i'm really you know in the real world now <laughs> as and, much as New York is, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm very sympathetic with the sense of, like, where's authenticity? And the ironic thing for me was that towards the end, the last 10 or 15 years in the New York area, it ju you just felt it all draining out of it. You yeah. felt all the life going, you, all the independent. I got there just in time to watch all the little used bookstores close, and all the diners were closing. Mm -hmm. And everything that had been there that had character was being replaced with like chain drug stores. Sure, yeah. And I know. banks, you know. And that's when often yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Well, I was just gonna say moving to Hamilton. Hamilton is a real place. It has a real psychogeography, you know. It's like it has grime and grit and history and there's a space a spatial quality to life here where there's like there's a geography to the place. There's a giant cliff. It's kind of like uh, if you know uh, the relationship between Hoboken and, and then the towns on the cliff above it on the Palisade. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like that, but unlike Ontario, there's like a cliff and then there's the old town at the bottom. And so everywhere you go, you're reminded that this is for real. 
<laughs> yeah. In New York, everywhere you go, you're reminded that this used to be for real. In in Manhattan, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and in a lot of Brooklyn. Yeah, in some parts of Brooklyn. Yeah. The Bronx uh, but, is still for real. <laughs> Well, and there are a lot. And speaking as a former Brooklynite, there's a lot of places in Brooklyn that are for real too. But, but, but it's yeah, being pushed out. It's like it's yeah. you know. Well, the, the gentrification does that. But yeah. you know, I think it's we're talking when we're talking about this, we're talking about the impact of the mega corporation in a way, and and the the late yeah. stage capitalism and all exactly. of that, yeah. right? And its impact yeah. on a culture. And yeah. what we're we're saying in it in a way is that. You know, as this economic engine grinds on, it grinds up the spirit of life in a way. Yeah. And, you know, and and we all feel somewhat soul, as though our souls are being robbed, you know, or, or stolen. Yeah. And to bring you know? it back to comics, that's yeah. the thing that the printed book, this is what we missed in yeah. 10 years ago in thinking about like, well, of course it'll go digital. Everything's going to go digital. That's great. And then this, there's been this kind of resistance to it, and I, I think it's coming from that exact place, that sense of, like, I want the authentic experience of this object in my hands. Yeah. And 10 years ago, I would have been a little dismissive of that. Yeah. I would have been, oh, well, you know, that's very precious of you, but, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not all rich. Yeah, well, that's the reality you know, uh, I talk to a lot of newspaper comics, uh, cartoonists, you know, uh, newspaper yeah. cartoonists uh, on this show. And we all talk about the death she's, of the you newspaper. You talked to Lynn Johnston, right? Yes, absolutely. She's from, she's from Manitoba, where I'm yeah. from. Yeah, and uh, and she's out towards Vancouver now. I, I believe that was where it was. And what a, She's great. I mean, she was fantastic. And what a wonderful person. Um, but... Anyway, and a great story and great comics, you know, that she's produced over the years. But, you know, the, a lot of the discussion always revolves around what's happening with the newspapers. And I, I think the newspapers in large part are signing their own death warrant. But it listen, you know, there is something distinct about a, a newspaper comics page and that experience. And and, and I'm, I'm not speaking from a nostalgic point of view. Uh, although probably informed by it some way, but the experience of reading comics on Instagram, you know, the, the comic strips that I read on Instagram is not the same thing. It's not the same vibe. It's not. And there is an authenticity that you're talking about to holding that, that newsprint in. And that's why we did pood man. Uh, the, the newspaper, there, there was a reason for that. It had a certain kind of newsprint has a certain kind of quality and a certain reality and a certain, you uh, need to send a copy of Pood number four to Karen Green at oh, Columbia. She doesn't have one? I she doesn't would... have one. Did you, did you see that little thing she was doing about Pood? I just saw one Facebook post, man. I didn't see. Uh, well, that was the fa- that That's what I'm referring to. But, you know, she it went on like because other people were talking about it. Pood for the listeners is uh, something Jeff and I published years ago together. Yeah. Um, and it was an anthology broadsheet. Um, newsprint yeah huge yep 17 by 24 i think it was yeah 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 Yeah. but anyway karen green was talking about how she had all three of them and i showed her number four and she was like oh i don't have that so she's a real completist you know because she she completes these she has this collection of comics for columbia so if you have one you know and you sent it to her at columbia she'd be thrilled 
okay, yeah, I'll do that. Um, yeah, okay, just uh, she's a librarian there at Columbia or in charge of. I can't yeah, she's, yeah, exactly. She's a librarian. Oh. She was a medievalist, but then she yeah. wound up in charge of the comics collection. Well, I will. Um, I'll I'll look up the mailing address and I will send her a copy. Sure. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to derail your point. Oh no, but anyway, you know, there's something to be said for that experience, and I don't know what replaces that experience. I don't know if anything can replace it, but seeking something with similar kinds of qualities, you know, uh, that that as you were as we've been talking about the tangibility, you know, the object quality of your book. It's not the same, you know, holding that book in your hand is a very different thing. And, and, uh, it's hard for me again, I'm, I'm, there's this whole life experience of reading books and, and holding onto books and paperbacks, you know, reading, you yeah. know, those, what, what is the guy? Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard. Yeah. Okay. Robert E. Howard books, you know, uh, and having those paperbacks in hand or whatever, it's a whole different kind of yeah. mentality. Do you, know, do you know what I did in the last decade? No. I went on eBay and reconstituted my childhood science fiction paperback collection. Really? Oh yeah. My. How I many books? <laughs> 600. Holy moly. <laughs> 600 and books. And eBay lets you track down the exact same edition. The exact oh, cool. same. Because for me, a lot of it was about like, I want that same paperback cover. That same you know? cover. Yeah. 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 So oh, for the, yeah, that's great. For the Edgar Rice Burroughs, I mean, obviously, it's like the Frank Frazetta covers and the Roy Crankle covers from the Ace Editions, right? Yeah. From the 60s. Yeah. Um, great. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that's a wonder of eBay. But you know, I actually, strangely enough, uh, precipitating this, this podcast, I was seeking out uh, faucet paperbacks of, of old Peanuts collections that I used to have as a kid. And uh, and a couple of Dennis the Menace things that I I picked up, you know, looking. I mean, there's a joy to those things, and I love the, the paperback quality, and I love the cheapness of them, you know. Uh, but there's something about them that that is irreplaceable. And the same thing, paperbacks were cool, you know, because yeah. uh, they were cheap too, and you get this <laughs> great cover, you know, and uh, sometimes a pretty cool story. I could I could as a kid I could afford to go to the local used bookstore yeah and they were uh, they were a quarter a dime for these used science fiction books they're all like you know this was in the 70s and they were from the 60s i would walk out of there with a little paper bag with like a huge stack of those things yeah oh me too i loved used bookstores still do yeah. but yeah. You know. Oh, man, you could get some great stuff and, you know, some great, absolutely great science, science fiction, great adventure stories, uh, stuff that you wouldn't find in the drugstore. But still. Yeah. Oh, so it's man. funny because then there's this transition, you know, that takes place between the kind of like fetishism of the book as you're reading it, you know, that kind of like the feel of the paper. Yeah, you know, my my book is heavier than I expected. So for me, it's like the heft and the texture of the cover is not what I expected, and I like it. You know, yeah. So I'm I'm very physically attached to it, but that transitions away once you've finished reading it into this trophiness where uh -huh. it goes on the shelf, right? Right. Yeah. And then you start talking about like like I I just heard somebody say the other day, you know, you don't really own a book unless you've read the book. 
So this idea of like the, the book on the shelf isn't just an old friend in the sense that, you know, I read that book. It's proof. Mm-hmm. Of an you experience. And yeah. That, and that, that proof of your experience is there for you to revisit when you need to or when you wish to. And yeah, even at a glance, even yes. just the spine, it's still yeah. there. It's very yep. reassuring. Yeah. Oh, man, I wouldn't trade. And, and absolutely. And you're right. You know, you, you it, it is a record and uh, an embodiment of that experience. Yeah. Um, like smell will or music will bring you back to another experience that, you know, the first time you heard a song or or, or you encounter a smell, it brings you back in time. It brings you back to that experience, but it's renewed when you open the cover and you start to right. flip again. And then you start thinking about, like, what is the difference between the type of work that suits that mm-hmm. whole idea of the kind of trophy or fetish object what type of work suits that and what type of work doesn't and that i think is where you start getting into the meat and potatoes of what's happened with digital media Mm -hmm. Um, because some things are more ephemeral than that and those are the things that i think really did wind up translating into tablets yeah or other screens and um like me yeah and but not a lot of comics i think to the extent that it's happened in comics where it has worked has been superhero comics Uh which were already coming at you in these kinds of installments and i think a lot of people today i'm not going to say kids because i don't know how many kids even read superhero comics but younger people than us people in let's say young men (laughs) in their 20s and 30s reading these superhero comics that come out in installments i think for some of them comicsology and things like that where you buy it digitally and you look at it on a tablet i think for some of them that does the trick and i think some of them fetishize them and put them in long boxes and so forth yeah, I think very few people are consuming the more sort of serious indie graphic novels as ephemera. I think a lot of them are like, I have this object. I will not put it on my shelf. I have a collection of these, and well, it's it's more that way for them. Well, so things I like things like newspapers. Yeah, those translated perfectly into iPads. Into yeah, New New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm thinking too, what you're just saying, as it's interesting, as this phenomenon, this application of comics, this bifurcation of comics into digital media and and physical, uh, and you talk about how the superheroes are translating. um, When I think about uh, independent comics, alternative comics, personal comics, I think about your book. I think about Seth's last book, Clyde Fans, and the 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 slipcase it came in. Or, or I think about Chris Ware and building stories. Right, um, you know that the packaging becomes part of the story now. You know, particularly with Chris Ware. Um, you know, the idea of it as an object becomes also part and parcel of the conception of the piece. You know, so as uh, in some sense, it's a way it's another manifestation of this kind of phenomenon that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the, you know, the, the last Kramer's ergot that um, Alan Buenaventura did. 
you know, the, the $125 one. That was oh, that a big thing. thing. I stopped looking at those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, like you said, I, Graphics is doing them again. I, I yeah, had to pick one up and look at it. What is their, uh, they have um, the, is it now or something? I can't remember. No, they're doing, well, they are doing now, but they're also doing Kramer's Ergot again. Oh, okay. Well, you know. I guess Sammy Harkin is still the editor. It's like you said, you know, I, I, this is the thing about my older age, and I don't know, and you said it too, is I'm, I'm so busy making stuff that I have very little time to read the stuff that I bought that I want to read. You know what I mean? It's like the time has become, I don't know, working. I work all the time. That's one of the things yeah. that I is made possible. It's just like not yeah. constant 24 seven work. And, and I love yeah. it, but I can't stop, you know, and put the, well, and also, I mean, you get to a point in life where you're very conscious of like, how much time do I have left to make work? Yeah. At, you know, at my, you know, at, at the peak of my cognition, yeah. <laughs> let's say, yeah. yeah, as considered struggling for nouns, right? Uh, yeah, I know, right? It's cool. it's, you know, no, it's exactly, that's exactly the case. I spend a lot of time, you know, I should spend less time thinking that and more time working. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, you know, yeah, oh, Christ, how much time do I have left, you know, before the clock winds down? I got to get this done. And, yeah. uh become you realize that you know you have to spend your time on things that really matter and uh and this has been one of them you know this this talk today uh this is great i mean we haven't had a chance to connect like this in years right i think it's been years i think last time i saw you was at a brooklyn show uh i don't know 10 years ago maybe uh, i bet it was yeah yeah it was at least that long so Anyway, uh, Kevin, um, thanks for being on the show. It's it's been fantastic. Uh, wow, we have covered a wide range of topics. Yeah, you're gonna need to cut this down, eh? Well, <laughs> split it up into two episodes probably is what I'll do, uh, because that that uh, that's you know I, I'm actually just going through another show right now. And I'm debating, should I, should I keep it all? Cause it's about two hours, you know, two hours is about the max that I, that I do for a show. And I'm wondering, should I split it into two or just do the whole thing in one shot? And because the second parts of these things always tend to get a little less, you know, in terms of downloads, but I think two hours is a long time for people to listen. So, uh, I don't know, sometimes splitting it up makes a lot of sense. So I might, this might be a two-parter. We shall we shall see. Probably will be. I, I tend to not cut very much out of the talk because I think the talk is kind of interesting uh, where wherever it goes. And this one's gone some interesting places. Um, I think people will appreciate it. But the most important thing to talk about is the rough pearl. And and that book will when the stores open up and you can get out to the stores, you got to go pick it up because it's a terrific book. It is really interesting, fun. It's, it's funny in a kind of dark way. Uh, and it is also very insightful and, and revealing, I think. Um, so, and it's, it's also one thing to be said about it as, as, as I think sometimes bleak as it might seem in certain portions of the book, it's also very hopeful, uh, I think. So I hope people will pick it up and, uh, look for it and order it. If you don't get to a bookstore, order it from Amazon or Fanographics and, uh, cause it's there. So yeah. Beautifully Kevin, said. 
well yeah i think it's it's important to support our independent comics artists and i think it's, this is an important book and it's gotten some great reviews and if you're curious and uh wondering about whether you spend your money you can read the reviews because they're all really great and uh publish yeah publishers weekly did a nice one yeah. did an interesting one um so you know and there are a bunch of others out there uh, it's a great book kevin and kevin you know what's been really exciting for me uh as a friend of yours and somebody who worked with you you know alone all those many years ago uh it's just exciting to see something like this come to fruition and uh you know make it to the big time man it's great well thanks a million jeff i really appreciate uh everything that you're saying there and uh it really is great to have it out there. It's great to have it finished. Um, these things take a really long time. Mm -hmm. But I keep looking at my kids and saying, you know, listen, if there's one lesson to be learned, uh, it's stay in it for the long haul and don't be distracted. You and I keep talking about, like, I haven't even been paying attention lately because I'm doing the work. And it's like, do the work. Yeah. Do the work. Yeah. If you're in a position, <laughs> comics gives you the chance to do the work. Yeah. That medium, that's the yeah. best thing about it. Do the work. I, I'm, I'm, I, and on that note, I think we can, uh, we can wind it up. I think that's a good, good place to, to call it uh, an interview. And um, so, thanks again for being on the show. Wow, that was, uh, that was a, a very interesting discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, as much as I did, it was great to touch base with Kevin. I wish him all the success in the world with The Rough Pearl. I hope it, like, burns up the graphic novel charts and somebody picks up the movie rights and make a wild movie. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book, and it is a wild book. And I think, uh, boy, it would, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody out there in Filmland picks up the rights to it because I think it's, it's going to make a really great film. So... That's not to say that all comics have to be turned into film, but that's another subject. Uh, they don't. Comics are great in their own right. And actually, I'm not a big fan of... Oh, see, now I'm getting off on a tangent. <laughs> comics don't have to be... Superheroes don't... You know, when we were, I was a kid, yeah, I wanted to see, you know, those kinds of movie realizations of my, my heroes, uh, Superman and whatnot. We all wanted to believe a man could fly, but... I, it's kind of for me it's kind of grown thin I, I just go I like the comics it is always a thrill it's always a thrill to see a Marvel movie or, or one of your favorite superheroes up on the screen but I, I even prefer the comics to the animated versions I mean I love the Fleischer versions of Superman but and they're great in their own right but it's a different thing you know and the experience of comics reading comics and all it offers Nah, I'll take the comics. <laughs> you know, the comics have Jack Kirby. So that's enough, right? Enough said. Uh, and that said, okay, so I hope you thought through that, that idea, that issue about cartoony approaches to heavy-duty subject matter. And certainly Jack Kirby is one of those guys who does that. And, of course, Robert Crumb does that. And Seth does that. And the Hernandez brothers do that. And, uh, and on and on and on. And there's so many. Walt Kelly and, and, you know, Jules Pfeiffer. And so, you know, I think we can win this argument <laughs> with Kevin. Kevin, if you're listening, I, I don't know. I think I got you on the ropes there, man. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I'm sure that everybody's come up with a bunch. You were probably shouting them at me while you were 
listening to the podcast and so I'm glad you know in defense of the cartoony because that's what I like <laughs> I like realism too I like it all it's a it's a what is a cornucopia of great stuff that's what comics is you know, potpourri a melange <laughs> it's a fun word to say a melange so yes uh, the other thing that I was thinking about and of course it's interesting to me but it's probably not interesting to anybody else you know because I'm an old guy and I ruminate on this stuff uh, is is you know the distinction between digital reading and reading I know I know I know it's belaboring a point that's like over and done with and it really is over and done with I, I don't know why I guess because I'm from that old generation that it's still an issue <laughs> but the distinction I think and I'm going to talk about it anyway the distinction is that when you're reading a book or a newspaper right in the hard copy in the paper version of a paperback or a newspaper it's an it's a personal experience it's separate it's isolated it's alone you are an individual con connecting to this material and the experience is a private one the experience when you're reading digitally is not you're always connected one way or another even if you're not you know your browser's not open you're still connected the filials are still out there the tendrils are still out there into the internet like you know the roots of a of a moss you know uh, underground you know through through uh, or, or the roots of mushrooms right isn't that what they say they, they just this big fungus reaches out and and its tendrils reach everywhere well you know that's like the internet is a big fungus <laughs> So, uh, but when you're reading a book, you're alone. It's a private experience. And there's something that, that is very important about those private experiences. And my, you know, I was just talking to my wife about it. My version of Dune is different from her version of Dune. And, so, and, and there are no comments, you know, when I'm reading that book. It's, it's on, uh, in paperback or whatever on my own. And I think that's important. And that's something I still enjoy when I'm reading a book. But it's harder and harder to disconnect from the internet from Instagram from everything else and uh, but it's we gotta make time to do it I gotta make time to do it so I'm gonna do that and I'm gonna do that right now so I'm gonna hang up I'm gonna say oh I almost forgot self-promotion bit check me out on Instagram okay at Grogan Jeff G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F -F. you can follow me there keep up with whatever I'm doing you can also check in with me on Patreon patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N and if you are of the means and the mind any support you send my way shall be appreciated uh, and uh, yeah okay self-promotion done Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say be well, be healthy, be safe. And I hope your loved ones are all safe and healthy and happy. And just take care of yourself, okay? These are tough times. And uh, we'll get through them. We'll get through them together. And I will see you next time. Next time up, we got the great Brian Walker. Whoa! Brian Walker of Beetle Bailey, son of Mort Walker. Great comics historian, great comics writer. Can't wait to have that conversation. So that's up next time. So be looking forward to that, okay? Brian Walker next time around. And again, in the meantime, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.